I'm Steve Fisher. John Hallowell knows happiness. For the past 10 years, he's been part of a team that assesses the quality of life and the level of happiness in the world's countries. It's called the World Happiness Report. So now you're more inclined than you were before the first happiness report 10 years ago. People are now, anywhere you ask in the world, they'll say, well, the happiest countries are the Nordic countries. That was not known 10 years ago. And it certainly wasn't known in a way that led people to ask, why is life happier there than elsewhere? John's here to tell you where and how to find happiness on Life Slices. Welcome, John Hellowell, to Life Slices. I'm going to start with a question that I ask all our participants to start with. Who is John Hellowell? I'm a a longstanding economist at the Vancouver School of Economics, who some 25 years ago discovered that there were data out there whereby people value their own lives. And I said, well, this is what we've been assuming we couldn't measure in three centuries in economics. Either these data are really informative or they're uh, an illusion. And so I discovered they were very useful at measuring what matters to people. So uh, I'm now as much a psychologist as an economist and collaborate with people in every discipline there is to find out what makes for a better life. What is the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research? They're a group that specializes in putting together groups that cover many disciplines in order to do something that wouldn't have been possible within that discipline in its own boundaries. And they came along very early in the century, I think it was uh, 2001, and said they wanted to start a group with well-being and social identity at its core. And so we spent about two or three years trying to find a great people, group of people from around the world to do that. It was co-led by George Akerlof, a, a Nobel economist in Berkeley, and myself. And essentially, we, when we interviewed people from different disciplines, we wanted to make sure they were people who really didn't have a disciplinary ego, in a sense, people who were prepared to learn from other disciplines in the terms of those disciplines, not expecting other people to learn your lingo, but you wanting to learn their lingo. And so we put together a group of psychologists, economists, political scientists, sociologists, quite a range of people. And then that program lasted for about a dozen years. And it was a, it was one of the venues in which this well-being research flourished. So it's been a very important part. That program has ended now, but it was clearly very important to the development of this work, which, as you can imagine, is inherently interdisciplinary. What is the World Happiness Report, and, and what is its purpose? Well, that came along by quite independent channels, although clearly the ability to have this interdisciplinary team to provide ideas and resources was very important because early in the century, I got invited to take part in a conference, I think in 2005, 
for gross national happiness. That was a venture that was started in Bhutan by uh, Jigme Thinley, who was the Prime Minister of Bhutan at the time. And so I took part in a conference in Nova Scotia and then one uh, later in Brazil and had lots of contacts there. Quite independently of all this, Bhutan, with the support of Jeffrey Sachs, who was at that time an advisor to the Secretary General, launched a UN resolution in June of 2011 to make happiness and well-being a focus for national policies. That uh, motion passed with unanimity. And in consequence of that, in the summer of 2011, Jeffrey Sachs and Prime Minister Thinley co-chaired and convened a conference of people working in this field in Thimpu in order to plan a high-level experts meeting on this topic at the UN, which in the end was held in April 2012. It was Jeffrey Sachs' idea in the first instance, I think, but uh, the Prime Minister was equally attracted, that we should prepare a report that laid out the underlying science of well-being. If you're going to make something an objective, you clearly just don't want to do it from a position of ignorance. You want to know what is it we're accepting when we're accepting well-being as a focus for attention. And so we put together this report, and it was available. The meeting was in one of the UN's biggest conference room of 1,000 people. It was oversubscribed, and there were people in adjoining rooms seeing it all on video. And we only had 1,000 copies of the report, and they went out like hotcakes at the beginning of the meeting. And the meeting spread over three days. Only part of it was on the kind of things we study in the report. But there was clearly a lot of residual and global interest. It was quite clear that, you know what they say about what you measure, you treasure, and what you don't measure, you ignore, that there was clearly much more truth in that than we really realized. So that there was a continuing demand for people to know more about the science, and in particular, more about the data we were now able to present. There's a parallel source, an origin, if you like, this movement that was going on at the same time. In 2005, I was invited to meet with the Gallup organization, a small meeting in New York, to look at the first results they were getting out of a Gallup World Poll. And at that point, I was there with Ed, Ed Diener and Danny Kahneman, who were the two leading advisors to Gallup on the creation of this report. And indeed, Jeffrey Sachs was at that meeting as well. It was only 10 people altogether. And it was quite clear that the Gallup World Poll, which was just being started then, was going to be a really important game changer, as they hoped it would be, to be able to have something even more comparable for all the questions asked than is normally available, for example, GDP accounting around the world, even after almost a century of helping nations to define comparable national accounts, still lots of difficulties in getting things comparable. Gallup, by going out on a much smaller scale and directly, were able to ask the same questions in the same way in more than 150 countries all over the world. So I think if you're wanting to put roots in under what we've been creating, the, the Bhutanese initiative is primary. 
the existence of an underlying science of positive psychology is primary. The Gallup World Poll is the primary source of data. Uh, and this UN conference in 2012 was clearly a drawing together of all those strands that gave the data and the science common point and focus and audience. It was clear that people around the world really wanted to know more about was it possible to measure the quality of life? And if it was, one of the first things they want to know is what's it like in our country? So that was a primary driver. And then they want to know how come. So what are those factors? What, what, makes, what makes a country happy? Well, the appropriately modest answer is we don't know, but we're sure spending a lot of time trying to find out because the quality of the answer depends on the quality of the information. And it's one thing to have what we think we have, which is a reasonably robust measure of people's own evaluations of their lives. And we make a really big and important distinction that I insist on making every time I talk about this, that we are not Although all the media reports say we have an index of happiness, we don't have an index at all. There are many indexes of misery, of environmental quality, of, of, of happiness. Some people put out such indexes where they choose things they're important, they think are important, and combine them to give uh, their view about what makes for a happy country. We say, no, that's not the right way to do it. The right way to do it is simply to give people primary data. So this is a very democratic process, if you like. We simply collect and average people's answers to a single question, which is think of your life as a whole, as a ladder, where the worst possible life is a zero and the best possible life is a 10. How would you rate your life these days? And it varies over time. It varies enormously across countries. And we have now got, of course, some 16 years of data from more than 150 countries. So at the individual level, where we have millions of answers, as well as at the national level, where we now have thousands of answers, we can take a stab at what makes for a happier country. What is dystopia? <laughs> well, you're getting ahead of the game here. Oh. The, what, we, we then put together a model. So of the best, putting together the best of the factors that we could find in the data, and so we have the classic development indicators like GDP per capita, healthy life expectancy, which continue to have a continuing power. And then we have four variables, which are generally, you could put them under umbrella of the quality of the social fabric of a country. Do you have someone to count on in times of trouble? Have you done a generous act? A donation is the one we centrally use in the last month. Do you have a sense of freedom to make your key life decisions? And do you live in a trustworthy society? The questions we have in the poll have to do with the existence of corruption in business and government. So that's not a complete and broad of measures we'd like. We've been encouraging them to put in questions about whether people think their wallet would be returned if it was lost and if it was found by a police officer or a neighbor and so on. We have a year of data of that, and that may be worth talking about too. But now I'm ready to tell you about dystopia, because 
we have these overall numbers and we put them in a bar. Then we say, we'd like to explain how much of that bar is explained by each of those six variables. Well, think about that, right? I mean, we've got a coefficient on each of those variables. And we can then say, well, relative to somebody, you're better on, I mean, take healthy life expectancy. Suppose you live two years more than in some other country. You can take the coefficient from the model and say your happiness is higher by X points because your life expectancy is two years longer. Well, we can do that for all these six variables. Then the point is, how do we stop these little bars from being negative? We want each of the bars to add up, right? That leaves something at the top. So we say, aha, here's a smart idea. We'll compare for each of these variables, our national value with the value, the lowest value in the world for this variable. So it's a different country typically for each of those six variables. And of course, that country has a very low, we can then to start with yours and then take off what you're getting from having higher income, better freedom, more likely someone to count on than in other countries. And then that takes, if you take your country's score, subtract the bits you've had from being better than dystopia on all of this away, it gives a number. And of course, it's natural to call that country dystopia. It's a fictional country. The number is still above zero, but it's what you'd expect to get as a life satisfaction answer from somebody who lived in a country with the world's lowest values of each of those six variables. So which countries have you found closest to dystopia? Well, I think that it's typically a country where everything is going badly. And so it's often in some place in warfare. It, internal conflict is common, starvation, and a, a broken social structure. Countries can have quite high subjective well-being, even though they're in very difficult circumstances, if people feel that they're working together to solve a problem. And that's especially true in natural disasters, for example. So you don't find a country that you think might be decimated by a national disaster. You don't find it taking them down, way down, because Two things happen with the disaster, and COVID-19 has been one of these disasters, so we've seen it again here in the last two years, that although the disaster itself is damaging to your life, your life, risky to your lives, damaging to your livelihoods, and stops your social connections being what they otherwise might have been in the COVID-19 case, but what it does do, it gives you a chance to see how other people respond in this kind of context. It gives you a chance to come out and help other people, and it gives other people a chance to come out and help you. Well, it turns out that through the media principally, but uh, maybe in general, bad news travels faster than good news, is that people simply don't understand the quality of the social context in which they live. So people are happier if they think their wallets would be returned, much happier, you know, by a full point on the 10-point scale. But are they right about whether other people would return their wallets? Well, looking across countries, people are pretty good. So the high return countries are the ones where people expect their wallet to be returned. But uniformly across countries, people underestimate the generosity of their neighbors by a huge factor. So people are living in needless fear. 
they're not having a credible optimism. And as a consequence, they're less likely to reach out and help each other. Well, in these, uh, Fukushima was an example in Japan, in these situations, they see that the bystander effect isn't ignoring someone in trouble, it's rushing in to help them. That's the real bystander effect. And so they don't stand by, they rush in to help. So when you see that in your society, it changes your view of yourself, of your neighbors, and the society you live in, of course, it improves it. So that's a big sustaining uh, factor. Countries that are at the very bottom, getting back to your question about what it is, are typically ones where the social context is broken as well as other things. And now often you get into these uh, downward spirals. Been a lot of criticism around the world of, of the news media and what you can trust and what you can't. Does that factor into a, a country's happiness? Well, in the way we've just been discussing, for sure it does. Because if your opinion about other people, based partly on your personal experience and partly on what you read and see and have pushed at you by uh, many, many media sources now, and you are in fact too pessimistic, then the likelihood is, since your reality is your reality, that you're being told through the news. And of course, uh, I, when I talk to journalism uh, students, I say, what are you told? And they said, they're still told the old things they used to be told. If it bleeds, it leads, etc., etc. So they deliberately focus on choosing stories about bad things being done by bad people uh, to other people. And so that, because the news, you treat the news as representing reality, even if it's a split news, you can average the split news and so on. But they're on that. But if both sides overestimate evil, even if it's the evil of the other guys, you end up with a jaundiced view about reality. And the media have never taken a formal responsibility for asking the fundamental question: What is our responsibility as a news medium to represent the world as it is? Isn't that what news should be? And then ask, let's go through our feed for the last year. Does that represent the quality of this city, of this region, of this country, of this world, as it really is? Or is it give you something more like dystopia? And the answer is, typically, you're hearing about a country and thinking about society in ways that are dystopian. And if the dystopian impression ends up actually affecting your behavior in negative ways, not only your own happiness, but what you will do to step out of your corner and help other people in trouble. And we know it does because there's lots of cases just like this and experiments. Then the news media are in fact creating a worse world by having an unbalanced view of the world being presented on the screens of the news media day after day after day. Do the perceptions, do our perceptions of other countries match what you're finding out about the people's attitudes in those countries? Ah, oh, that's an interesting question. Uh, you're asking me, they often do this in, in basic happiness studies. They say, I'm not going to Sit. I'm not going to believe what a person says themselves about how happy they are. We're going to ask their family members or their neighbors, what do you think? And if it's someone who really knows you, they'll probably come close. Although people are often, well, it depends whether they're hiding their angst from their family and friends or from the survey giver. Uh, it may end up uh, balancing 
Uh, in general, if you ask people about happiness, we've never surveyed this, right? So I, I really don't know. My guess is, because we do know for individuals, they think that people who are richer than them and have more material possessions are happier than them. And they typically ignore the regular day-to-day -day quality of the social context. So they get it wrong. And people get it wrong in their own lives. They choose a longer commute and a bigger house over more time with family and friends. And that's a routine kind of thing people do. And they end up eventually getting, maybe not knowing why they're so as stressed and unhappy as they are, but they face the consequences for that. So for a long time, people were assuming that it was the rich, you know, and you could think about the development strategies that were promulgated and followed by countries all over the world. They were to increase GDP and get rich as you can. Oh, nice, nice if you could get healthy at the same time and keep out of wars and be democratic. All of those things were sort of put in the thing. But they didn't focus on the actual daily quality of life for people. And right from the very first World Happiness Report, that's what happened, right? It's been true every year that the five Nordic countries have all been in the top 10 every year. And the other countries in the top 10 have been ones that have been quasi-Nordic in key respects, where people really do care about each other. And they look after each other's interests and their trust levels are high. They have institutions that do what are asked of them and are trusted by the people in the country. And so that's now, quite importantly, change the way people think about development. They're now saying, let's not talk about bigness, let's talk about the quality of life. And there, of course, once you're getting to quality, you better ask the experts, which are the people living there. And so that does change. And so now you're more inclined than you were before the first happiness report 10 years ago. People are now, anywhere you ask in the world, they'll say, well, the happiest countries are the Nordic countries. That was not known 10 years ago. And it certainly wasn't known in a way that led people to ask, why is life happier there than elsewhere? And of course, then that takes you right back to the social context, which was long ignored. In the time you've been involved with the Happiness Report, what are, what are the biggest surprises for you? Well, I came into the field because I'd been working in a, in a subject called social capital, working a lot with uh, Robert Putnam, who was a colleague of mine when I was a visiting professor for several years at Harvard, on social capital, which is the norms of trust that govern our collective actions and how we get along with each other and looking for a way of valuing that uh, because we were looking at whether it gave you more economic growth. But if it's really important, it, that's not where you're going to have it showing up. It ought to show up in how people feel about their lives. So I discovered data said, let's then put these data to work at valuing social capital. So it really wasn't a surprise when we found that these elements of the social context were as important as they are. It wasn't a surprise for us because we'd already learned this before we got to the World Happiness Report stage. But for the world as a whole, and for our readers, that's one of the big surprises, is to learn the importance of the social context. And it changes people's lives when they hear about this. They say, aha, uh -huh, what can I do? And then that first they're gonna say, it's up to our governments to do that. And they say, wait a minute, what we know about the social context is it's the power we have to improve our own lives 
that makes us happy. It's our willingness and opportunities to work with others to solve our own problems that makes us happy. That takes people right back to their daily life and how they interact with people in traffic and on the streets and on the elevators and in the workplace. So they find they can do important reforms that are way bigger in terms of their effects on their own lives than anything any government could do. And of course, once they start doing that, then they say, well, I'd really like it if our public services were organized too, to make it easier for us to collaborate with each other to produce a better lives for all of us. A little less road rage would make us all happier. Well, that was one of the early results that came out of Robert Putnam's research. He found people that had given someone a finger in traffic that within the last week were uniformly less happy than other people. And it's an absolutely standard result. If you, you can experiment yourself, either watching or doing it, is give someone an impatient gesture. It doesn't have to be a rude one in a traffic situation and you can see what it does to them. You can see what it does to you. After an incident of road rage or even road rudeness, both parties go away less happy. Mm-hmm. Alternatively, you get into a situation where traffic goes after you, after you, after you, or with a wave and say, you go ahead. Both parties go away happier. Well, that's what's sort of called external effects, right? It's, it, it doesn't just make you happier, it makes them happier. And so it sets the stage for these positive interactions. And so, yes, the road, because traffic's important, it's a very important venue for public life. And you'll do find, indeed, road politeness and friendship is much more commonly found in happier countries than in unhappy countries. I was very surprised looking at the latest report and seeing that the U.S. and Canada were pretty much neck and neck. I mean, Canada 15th and and the U.S. 16th. I imagined Canada to be a much happier country than the U.S. Has that settled down over the years? Well, the model we use to predict this shows that the, the answers Canadians are giving now are below what we would expect them to be. So there's a lack of confidence in some aspects of this and how much of it is caused by the invitations we're getting very regularly in the media and elsewhere to rethink not just our lives, but the lives of those in generations and centuries before and take on the guilt as part of the transition to reconciliation and beyond. And Canada as a settler society that seriously disrupted the lives of uh, of those who were here before is going through this angst. So that may be part of it, because Canada has had its higher level of life evaluations through a pride that that wasn't this kind of society. So multiculturalism has always been a, an element of pride. The collaborative development of the, of the frontier regions with the indigenous population been an element of pride. This week, indigenous leaders are meeting with the Pope in order to get an apology for what happened a century ago. During that process of truth, which it should be truth before reconciliation, yes, but you want to get the reconciliation started that's what produces the happiness, the common building, the co-building, co-creation of something better that makes people happy. So although these of these six variables, income is the only one where the U.S. has more than Canada on the other five, the Canadians rate themselves, even in these times, at a higher level. So how we 
document that decline. It isn't showing up, interestingly enough, so much in the in the much larger Statistics Canada surveys where the life evaluations have been pretty flat over the last 10 years. In doing these studies, have you ever thought to yourself, maybe I should move to another country? Oh, on the contrary, because a lot of people do are tempted to interpret the data in precisely that way. And, it, and especially when 2018, we looked at the happiness of immigrants. We found that the happiness of immigrants ranked across the world was exactly the same as the ranking of the, res- of the locally born. What that implies is when you go to a country, you do on average move to their level of happiness. So you say, what the hell? Uh, I don't have to change jobs. I can move to Helsinki. But, well, but we've got uh, pushing up towards 10 billion people in the world. We know that cities are not the happiest places. The happiest places are ones, in fact, that are less crowded, where people have a chance to connect with each other. It's clearly not a solution to our happiness problem to get everybody to try and move to the same place. The whole point is that these magic factors for creating happiness, you don't have to go and see them done somewhere else. You can do them yourself right at home. And so it's part of what we're trying to do is expose the underlying science of happiness, that it's not living in Helsinki itself as a place. It's living life the way people in Helsinki do. And every aspect of that can be recreated anywhere. And so that makes you optimistic about the future of the world. If you really said happiness is the holy grail found only in country A or country B, then you're in for a bad world because you can't all go there. And we know very well if everybody tries to go to the same place, it'd be like having a global refugee camp all in one place. You say, no, that can't be right. What has to be right is that people have a chance to help each other to create better lives. And that chance is available everywhere. And you can do more about creating happiness by doing something that in fact can be spread and adopted easily by billions of people rather than by moving to Helsinki, which is possible only for thousands. John, we're about out of time. Is there anything that you would like to answer about yourself or the report that I haven't asked about? Uh, Life is filled with unanswered and unanswerable questions. You've asked good questions, and I've talked too long in answering them, but it's, as you can see, a pleasure for me to talk about it. Well, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Uh, Much continued happiness to you. My thanks to John Hellowell for shining some light on a world that seems to have too much darkness. If you want to know more about the World Happiness Report, go to worldhappiness.report. And remember, if you want to be happy, you don't have to move to Finland. It's as simple as figuring out what makes you that way and bringing those aspects into your life. And it helps to bring others around you along for the ride. If you enjoyed this program, please like us on social media, share with friends and family, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Life Slices is produced by Beatnik Ravens Productions, all rights reserved. Music courtesy of Fesleyan Studios. 